How will climate and equity be built into America's economic recovery? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people who are in power and people who are disempowered. I'm Greg Dalton. The COVID-19 shutdown has hit women and minorities hardest, with Latina and Black women in low-paying jobs like housekeeping seeing the highest levels of unemployment. 70 to 90 percent of frontline workers are women relative to 50 percent of women in the workforce. So, I mean, the differentials are substantial and magnified in a pandemic. Dr. Julie Pullen is director of product with Jupiter Intelligence, a startup delivering neighborhood scale projections of weather, water and climate impacts. She's also an adjunct research scientist at Columbia University's Earth Institute and a fierce advocate for feminine leadership on climate. I still remember in the first two weeks of shelter in place, putting an out of office you know, response on my email saying I, I am now in addition to my day job, I've been promoted to an elementary school teacher, a chef, a housekeeper, a yard duty, a therapist. Alicia Seiger is Managing Director of the Sustainable Finance Initiative at Stanford University and a lecturer at Stanford Law School. Her struggle to juggle professional and personal responsibilities during COVID highlights the need for a recovery that specifically supports women and members of Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. I am a citizen of the Sequatmoc Nation from what is now uh, British Columbia, Canada. I'm also a descendant of the, the Liwat Nation of Mount Curry, also in Canada. Julian Brave Noisecat is Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the think tank Data for Progress and writes for many organizations, including Canada's National Observer. His experience learning his grandmother's native language, spoken by about only 200 people, has strongly informed his work on loss in the face of climate disruption. At its core, climate change is in part the loss of a climate, an atmosphere, and world uh, that supported civilization and, and human society as we know it. And in that sense, does pose an existential threat to the world that we inherited from our ancestors and parents and, and prior generations. And we are now breaking from that in the process of breaking from that. And for some people and communities, this is not the first existential threat uh, that we have faced. And in particular, here in North America, if we're talking about um, instances of apocalyptic breaks from what came before, um, you know, we have to acknowledge the genocide um, and theft of the majority of an entire continent from uh, First Peoples here. And, you know, I think that the trauma that that causes, the loss of cultures and ways of life um, that go along with that are, uh, you know, still present in the community that, that I come from, the people that I come from, uh, but that at the same time, um, and more hopefully, you know, I think people are remarkably um, resilient and, uh, you know, try to create the continuities of culture and in this case, language and, you know, love for for community and each other that come along with those things in the face of those challenges, in the face of those existential and otherwise apocalyptic circumstances. And I think culturally and from like a humanities and philosophical perspective, I think that those um, stories and experiences can be sources of strength as we uh, think about uh, big challenging issues uh, like climate change today.
Julie Pullen, your climate concern went to a deeper personal level when you were a professor in the Philippines witnessing the devastation that burning fossil fuels is bringing now to that nation. How did that impact you and how did it change your career focus? Yeah, prior to that experience that you reference, I had been a professor of engineering at an engineering school, and my focus had been on how the realms of the ocean, the atmosphere, and the river systems are linked together and um, simulating those linkages um, in order to be able to do a better job at predicting. Um, I went to the Philippines in 2018 as a Fulbright visiting professor on sabbatical, and I was with the University of the Philippines and teaching tropical meteorology and saw firsthand the impacts of um, typhoons on my field site in the north of the main island of Luzon. And it's this beautiful stretch of coastline where the river um, joins the mountains and, and the ocean. And um, it was heartbreaking to see the impact of climate change directly on the landscape and on the people that I had come to love so much. Um, as a consequence, it really galvanized and catalyzed me to do much more around um, climate and to sharpen my focus on climate in my work. Um, I came back to the United States. I joined Jupiter Intelligence, um, a climate risk analytics startup, in order to help um, businesses and other entities develop much more precise notions, quantitative notions of their exposure to um, climate change to help catalyze them to do more in advance of this really urgent climate crisis that we are in. Alicia Seiger, your climate awakening began reading Al Gore's seminal book, Earth in the Balance, and his articulation of the need and narrative was compelling, but distanced from you personally. When did climate become personal and actionable for you? Yeah, that was my entree. Uh, it was not something I ordered. It was actually something I read as part of a required course. Uh, but it, it really started my transfiction with this question of how to harmonize human and ecological systems and tying back to Julian's comments while still uh, in college, I actually, for my senior thesis, wrote a study of intellectual property rights as a means to preserve cultural and biological diversity for indigenous communities. And so I, I had this understanding and appreciation at the time of other ways of living that were more in harmony with nature. Uh, but I felt my skills and interests were really more in the business community. And so I started from this intersection of humans in the environment to business in the environment and was really captivated first actually by Anita Roddick and, and the work she did uh, with the body shop as kind of the first example of this business as a force for good. Uh, and as time went on, that intersection evolved from humans and in the environment to business in the environment to capital in the environment to going all the way up to the supply chain to understand how capital throw, flows through our economic systems and what that uh, what the implications of those capital flows are for our ecological systems and for climate change and I you know it was so I've been at this uh, for for three decades now but it's really been in the last five years I would say where this these uh, problems that had seemed like something we should be anticipating and, and be planning for uh, really hit home. And, and I think for me, that's been the fire seasons. You know, I live in the Bay Area too, and, you know, starting in, you know, the summer, but but running through the fall, there's a sense of eerie anticipation. I'm actually up here in wine country now with my family, and it's such a peaceful 
and beautiful and tranquil setting, but there's a new sense now of concern and of anticipation for what the increased, you know, heat and drought um, and and wind events do to a place like this. So the urgency around these challenges has has come much faster and and sooner in my uh, uh, professional life than I had anticipated. And fires are interesting because that's one area where, uh, Julian, you know, indigenous cultures have been looked to as, hey, that you might have some solutions. So that's at least for me, having done this for the last 14 years, the one instance where kind of white dominant culture looked to indigenous cultures and say, hey, you've been managing, not you, um, indigenous cultures have been having cool burns and, and controlled fires, whatever the, the name is, to kind of manage f- forests in a different way than Smokey the Bear. So tell us a little bit about how that might contribute to the larger conversation about dealing with climate. Yeah, so I think fire management is a really interesting one, right? Because there's a long history of indigenous peoples, including in California, um, using controlled burns to uh, prevent large-scale wildfires, to regenerate um, habitats, to promote promote biodiversity, etc. There's also actually really fascinating ways in which um, controlled burns in particular habitats help foster not just like plants and, and foods and um, animals that people hunt and gather from to provide sustenance, but also uh, create good uh, materials for basket making and things like that. Um, and this is not just particular to um, control burns and, and fire management, but um, you know, if you look at the way that uh, the United States and Canada have come to manage the the fisheries, um, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there's actually a lot of practices that have come to mirror um, prior indigenous forms of fisheries management um, in those places. Uh, and then more broadly, um, you know, still to this day, about 80% of the world's biodiversity is found um, in indigenous lands and territories. Um, and it's just logic says that if you want to preserve that biodiversity, um, and there's also lots of studies that suggest this as well, um, you know, giving indigenous peoples uh, title to their lands and also pursuing conservation strategies that empower indigenous peoples as environmental stewards and managers can be very effective. In fact, the Canadian government is going to invest more in, in just that sort of a thing uh, through its Guardian Watchman program uh, when it releases its um, fiscal year 2021 budget uh, later in April. So these are real solutions. Um, and I think what's really interesting about that, right, is that we, in especially this country, the United States, we don't imagine indigenous peoples as living in the present, um, let alone, you know, having solutions for the challenges of the 21st century. Um, that is a very radical reconception of, in the American imagination of, of our people. And I think that that's a very exciting thing. And I was truthfully a little disappointed that there wasn't more of a nod to that actually in the the president's um, American Jobs Plan, which included some stuff on resilience and conservation, but did not uh, include any explicit reference to uh, these sorts of efforts. Though, I, you know, I have been hearing him say, you know, states, tribes, and territories in a way that I haven't heard that really my ear picked up when I hear that phrase, states, tribes, and territories. That's a new phrasing we certainly haven't heard in the last uh, few years. Alicia Seiger, you have always approached climate from the view of carbon math and not underlying issues of equity and justice. How has America's racial reckoning and COVID changed the way you think about climate? 
Oh, such a good question. You know, I, I, I used to take pride in sort of the, the climate pragmatism approach of, you know, this is really all about just getting emissions reductions on the ground. And, and if we can just be laser focused on that challenge, we'll get there faster. And I, I have gone through a personal journey that I think mimics the larger climate conversation, which is around a real appreciation and understanding at a much more fundamental level of the intersections between racial justice and climate change and what climate justice really means. And I have much more to learn uh, and to understand. But you know, we got to where we are now in climate through a history of, you know, white supremacy, extraction, exploitation, uh, and that requires remedy and it requires um, a path forward that is built on new systems and with new representation and that the solutions to climate expand far beyond, you know, simple carbon math. They require really changing the facts on the ground to change people's lives and livelihoods to build the the momentum and the political will to, you know, ch fundamentally change our economic systems. And I also have come to more deeply appreciate, although this has been a through line of my career, that that climate at the end of the day is is a leadership crisis, and in particular a crisis of empathetic leadership. And so having more diverse voices at the table, having um, representation from you know, women and, and people of color in, in leadership positions, making decisions will lead to more equitable outcomes and, and new ways of thinking and doing that we, that we haven't seen in the past and we desperately need for the road ahead. You know, I had, I had at times, particularly in, the, in my early career in the carbon markets, uh, where I would be focused very much on the emissions reductions, not on the ancillary benefits, thinking the big tent was making things, you know, harder, have really come to appreciate that the big tent is the way forward, um, both in terms of, you know, leadership and in terms of expanding the solution set. So that's been a, a, a personal journey and I think a, a, a sector journey. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about a clean and equitable recovery. Coming up, addressing historical inequities and their present day consequences. There were households without running water where you couldn't do something as simple as, you know, wash your hands in the United States of America, you know, living in a place where you cannot wash your hands or live with electricity. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about investing in a clean and equitable recovery with Julian Brave Noisecat, Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the think tank Data for Progress, Dr. Julie Pullen, Director of Product with Jupiter Intelligence, and Alicia Seiger, Managing Director of the Sustainable Finance Initiative at Stanford University. Between 2014 and 2019, the annual growth rate of women-owned firms was more than double that of all businesses, and revenues rose to about $2 trillion, according to a study by American Express. 
but the COVID shutdown hit women disproportionately, especially women of color, and laid bare the gender and racial dynamics in this country, as Alicia Seiger explains. I still remember in the first two weeks of shelter in place, putting an out of office you know, response on my email saying, I, I am now, in addition to my day job, I've been promoted to an elementary school teacher, a chef, a housekeeper, a yard duty, a therapist. Uh, and I, I couldn't see how I could work and maintain what you know was needed at home. And somehow a year later, I'm doing all those things and busier than I've ever been at work. And that's thanks to support that I have, because I, I have a partner, I have a husband, I have a, a nanny who's now back. I have resources that I can put to work to help support me. I think you know, most women and, and working families don't have that kind of support. And so the challenge and the juggling act that we always were doing as mothers and women in, in the workforce has just come into sharp refrain um, with the absence of, of the supporting structures that, that we've come to rely on. Uh, and so I think, you know, you're seeing, and I've seen this in my colleagues, particularly in academia, where there's, you know, the, sort of there was a split in the road almost. And there were people who saw this opportunity as, oh my gosh, all I'm doing is sitting at home and working. I can do so much now. I don't have all these other distractions. And then other, you know, women in particular who were now juggling so much more. Um, so I think that's a challenge that always existed that COVID really laid bare and requires um, the, the kinds of rethinking of our of our systems that 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 are akin to climate. I mean, in this case, it's you know thinking about uh, caregiving as a valuable contributor and and role in economic um, recovery and livelihoods. And I think we, we need to be focused on the support systems that that women and mothers need to be able to to balance their work and family. Julie Pullen, one year after COVID hit, the percentage of women in the workforce hit a 30-year low at about 56% of American women in the workforce. As someone who works on financially empowering women, what should be done to help women rebound from COVID in an economy that's grappling with climate? Yeah, and to echo Alicia's comments about the impacts, differential impacts on women, um, that childcare and family care piece, um, Bank of the West has a, a tribute on their on their page of means and matters that pulls out some numbers around that, that that's 20 hours a week um, more than their male counterparts doing family and childcare work and 70 to 90% of frontline workers are women relative to 50% of women in the workforce. So, I mean, the differentials are substantial and magnified in a pandemic. And um, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism around um, all of the um, federal investment plans um, related to lifting up different sectors. And I think that retraining, I think that um, really providing these sort of incentives for companies to hire more women and to think about how to broaden their hiring practices and incorporating retraining in them are, are some strategies that that could work. Um, on a personal level, as you cited, I think it's really important to be investing in um, women and people of color um, led and um, owned businesses. And I think that we're seeing um, a broader shift, uh, particularly around ESG investing and looking at, at the impact of governments on having um, women leaders uh, at the table and the, the positive benefits to decision making overall. So I think all of these are just like waves that are cresting and, and we're going to see the benefits of these more broadly throughout the economy. 
ESG being an environmental, social, and governance, the idea of having social considerations when investing as well as financial. Julian Brave Noise Cat, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan recently passed by Congress includes $5 billion for Indian Health Services, $750 million in housing assistance for tribes and Native Hawaiians. How do you evaluate that package in terms of a just recovery, addressing some of the harms of the past that you mentioned at the outset? Yeah, so the uh, American Rescue Plan, uh, if I recall, had $32 billion total for Native communities. So that's if you include Indian country as well as Native Hawaiians and Alaska Natives, um, which made it the largest public investment in Native communities in United States history, um, which you know I think is obviously incredibly encouraging. Uh, in many instances, tribes were uh, some of the hardest impacted communities, not just in the United States, but among the hardest impacted communities in the planet on the planet um, during this pandemic. Uh, the Navajo Nation, for example, at one point had more coronavirus cases per capita uh, than the the Hebei province in China, where the the pandemic originated. Um, and just to put that in perspective, the Navajo Nation has a population density just slightly higher than that of Siberia. And, you know, a huge reason for that is things like, as you brought up Indian Health Service, uh, you know, the Indian Health Service is funded the last time I checked, um, which was before Biden passed this bill, which is important, uh, but was funded at about uh, $4,000 per patient. Uh, and if you compare that to other federal health care programs like Medicare, I think it's Medicaid, actually, it's about $13,000 per patient. So um, essentially, our spending on healthcare for Native people is less than a third of what it is for other Americans. And that has real consequences. You know, that looks like fewer hospital beds uh, per capita on the Navajo Nation than in places like New York City. That meant insufficient amounts of respirators and other essential um, equipment and PPE on the Navajo Nation. Um, and that looked like, you know, immense tragedy for people. That meant more people getting sick, more people dying. Um, and on very basic levels, uh, you know, there were households without running water where you couldn't do something as simple as, you know, wash your hands. So, you know, I think that it, that the American Rescue Plan, obviously very encouraging, you know, with all of these things, and in particular with, with policies that have to do with Indian country, the implementation is also just as important as the appropriations and authorization, you know, in the handoff between the federal government and tribes, historically, uh, there was a lot of corruption on the side of the federal government. Um, you know, it's never been particularly easy for tribes uh, who tend to be understaffed and under-resourced, as I just mentioned, uh, to be able to access all the funding that's made available for them. Uh, in the early days of the pandemic, there were crazy things happening like uh, tribes having to, you know, write grant applications to access some of the funding that Congress um, appropriated for them. You know, I'm hopeful that those problems are being ironed out and that Native people and communities will benefit from uh, this massive investment. Uh, but I think we need to keep in mind that in Indian country, uh, many people and uh, communities are digging themselves out of a very, very deep hole that was, um, you know, created quite purposefully through policy decisions made not just over, you know, the last four years or the last year, but, you know, over 220 years. 
We're talking about a clean and equitable recovery from COVID and thinking about a climate smart economy with Julian Brave Noisecat, Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the think tank Data for Progress. Dr. Julie Pullen, Director of Product at Jupiter Intelligence, a startup delivering neighborhood scale projections of weather water and climate impacts, and Alicia Seiger, Managing Director of Sustainable Finance Initiative at Stanford University. Um, as we're recording this, uh, President Biden's uh, unveiling a $2 trillion plan to rebuild the country's aging roads and bridges. Uh, there's also another uh, proposal recently. You know, this is just a proposal, a bill from Senator Ed Markey and Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan for a $10 trillion uh, spending plan over the next aid focused on infrastructure and climate. Alicia Seiger, how do you think markets would react to a $10 trillion or even a $2 trillion climate and infrastructure plan as the person kind of thinking about financial markets here? Is that a welcome? Sure. Uh, <laughs> it puts a lot of tailwind into uh, interests that investors have already uh, expressed around net zero uh, investment portfolios and net zero asset managers' uh, commitments. Uh, and so it was spent well. Um, that money can be starting to initiate the transition uh, across multiple sectors of the economy and I've just been sorting through the details this morning too but it's 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 as comprehensive as one would hope in terms of uh the electric power sector transportation housing stock etc um I think the risks that that could end up being another example of of this kind of disconnect where the financial system looks green uh but the real economy is still very uh dirty and unsustainable and so the challenge in in marrying the the uh government expenditures and support with with uh, the investment community is is doing it in such a way that um, you're not just moving capital around and making money, you're doing it in such a way that you are actually putting real heft behind the energy transition, uh, getting capital where it needs to flow to reduce the costs of many of these technologies, as, as Gates talks about the green premium of, of many of these technologies. So it's not just the capital, it's the alignment of that capital with the policy um, and set of incentives that, that help um, it flow in the direction and, and speed and scale that we need to decarbonize. Right. There's a scenario where, yeah, Goldman Sachs makes lots of money off of climate volatility and the people who are wealthy get even wealthier because uh, they're kind of a, the, off the volatility that climate is bringing to us. Uh, Julie Pullen, as a scientist who knows about the societal disruption already baked into the climate system, do you ever think we're just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic? Is all this money going to really make a difference? So that's a key part of where climate action comes in. I think it's, you know, it's everything. It's attention on climate risk. What's the exposure? Um, taking action on that front. It's um, taking action on the climate solutions um, and policy perspective. It's the spending on infrastructure, which, if, I mean, if you look at the amount, $700 billion for climate resilience across our power, water, um road systems, buildings. I mean, that's that's massive. It's a massive investment in um, making our infrastructure more resilient. And so I, I do think it's one of those cases where really everything here and, and the potentially synergistically, if you look at them all together, these are um, have the potential to be really transformative, again, subject to the implementation. 
So as working for a company that does really like block level, neighborhood level kinds of, of forecasts, um, uh, what are the areas that are really at risk? And if someone's going to try to move to a climate safe place, where should they move to, Julie Pullen? <laughs> Um, you know, I think it, it, it's it's very it's it varies across the country, of course, um, and you have to think not just a, across one particular peril like flood, um, but you have to also think about the heat waves and the intense precipitation events that we're experiencing. Um, places like Madison, Wisconsin, where my dad lives, I mean, they've seen unprecedented flooding, and um, that's nowhere near the coast. And so, these experiences are are going to be increasing in the future. And um, it's really the, the aggregate or the combination of all the perils, which is what we focus on in quantifying a range of different possible um, exposures. And of course, then there's like a, there's a community level imprint on this too, because you have like different parts of our New York, New Jersey region are, are proceeding at different paces in their investments in climate resilience. And, you know, one of the things we do at the Waterfront Alliance is advocate for equalizing those investments and making sure they're directed at these underserved um, communities as well. And so, I, you know, I think it is, again, the combination of, you know, looking at the climate risk, but also building the climate um, resilience in into the mix right where you live now and advocating for that. Right, because all the financial incentives will be to, to protect the highest property values, which are the wealthiest neighborhoods. Um, we have a market fundamentalism in this country that was significantly created and promoted over the past five decades or so by conservative philanthropists who funded research at think tanks and elite universities. Consequently, a large group of Americans think markets are more effective than government in solving many big problems. Alicia Seiger, will markets solve climate change? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I've spent the last, you know, several decades trying to make it be so. I think there are great market-based solutions to climate, and I've spent a lot of my career building them and pursuing them. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity, market opportunity for wealth creation in this transition. And I think there's a lot that markets can do to align capital as people start to wake up to the realization and to the understanding that we are fundamentally altering our physical systems and that there are risks embedded in our investment portfolios and in our decision making that are not part of our models. Um, there will be, a, and you're already seeing this, a tectonic shift in how capital is invested and how portfolios are managed. That said, to meet the timetables that are required that scientists have very clearly laid out for where we need to be in terms of our emissions trajectories and how um, essential it is to avoid some of the very scary negative feedback loops that we could unintentionally trip ourselves into. We need policy to align incentives to set the, the, the roadmaps to accelerate this transition. And so markets could get us there eventually, um, but the timetables and the science don't, you know, don't permit that kind of laissez-faire. We really do need the, the policy um, piece to be you know, core and fundamental to, to get markets to move in the right direction. And then markets can be a magical tool. Just adding on to Alicia's point, um, 
You know, Pew did a survey very recently that showed that demand for a more liberal form of government with a strong hand for the public sector was at a, you know, more than half century high. The last time it was at this level was in the late 60s. And, you know, just like empirically, the all the economic modeling and energy system modeling suggests that, you know, absent government intervention, we're just not going to make the kinds of policy changes that we need. So, for example, the base case for when we get over 50% of new vehicles being sold, being electric, uh, absent any sort of government in- intervention into that market is somewhere around 2050, right? Which is just far too slow uh, for us to get over 50% of new cars being sold, being electric vehicles. Um, and so, you know, I think that 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 people fundamentally understand these sorts of things. I think that the need for strong public policy responses to this pandemic um, has reinforced, I think, the value of policy and good government to, you know, a large segment of the voting public, obviously not all of it. Um, but I think that that was a big part of, you know, why Democrats, um, you know, won not just the presidency, but also the Senate, which was, you know, an unlikely occurrence um, in the 2020 election. And I think that it's great that that view is starting to, you know, come back to life, um, not just among sort of the uh, policy decision makers who, you know, decide how the president and the Congress are going to respond to these challenges, but also um, that it's, you know, picking up um, cachet among a larger segment of the public. I think that that gives me hope because I think that it's fundamentally the correct view on how to run, you know, a society. (laughs) You're listening to a conversation about investing in a clean and equitable recovery. This is Climate One. Coming up, building community around climate solutions. I think it's really helped a lot of us focus on doing that in our own ways and in our own lives. That really sort of central and important role of community in in all of this. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing an inclusive and just economic recovery from COVID preparing for the clean energy economy and climate change with Julian Brave Noisecat, Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the Think Tank Data for Progress, Alicia Seiger, Managing Director of the Sustainable Finance Initiative at Stanford University, and Dr. Julie Pullen, Director of Product with Jupiter Intelligence. All We Can Save is a collection of essays about women leading on climate. We discussed it at length in our episode, The Feminist Climate Renaissance. It also brought Alicia Seiger to tears. Oh, I loved that book. Um, you know, thinking about back to the, the earth and the balance, you know, that was, it captured my imagination and it, or more my sort of um, my mind. <laughs> but but all we can save just, just held my heart in a way that I just no book, climate book has ever done before. And I have collected an incredible tribe of women through my career and I thought I knew a lot of the or most of the, you know, climate women leaders. And and that book, there were some that I knew in that book, but it just introduced me to a whole new collection of of women climate leaders. And I felt so joyful and 
optimistic and encouraged in in reading that book. And I, I listened to it, which I really loved. And I, I remember just being on, on a trail run and feeling so much emotion running through the trails, listening to these incredibly brilliant and powerful women voices. And, and I think it was really struck by why or trying to think about why. Uh, and, and it's about making change instead of being in charge. It's not about the ego and taking credit. Um, in this idea of, of healing um, injustices rather than deepening them. You know, we talked a little bit about the heart-centered versus head-centered. I think you have to have both in this field, but it, you, but you have to have both. You can't just be thinking with your head. And really building community. Um, and, that, and, and all we can save to me really just propped up this community of, of, of women climate leaders um, in, in, through beautiful storytelling that, that ranged from very you know, scientific and, and um, head-centered analysis, but all with a heart and a connectivity and community that was woven throughout and, and, and then also introduced other uh, conversations and questions around um, you know, whether it was hearing from, from women with, uh, from the indigenous community, hearing from ecologists who are thinking about, you know, how our, our, our uh, fauna is, is all connected in ways that, that actually it wasn't Al Gore who invented the internet. It was uh, fungi, <laughs> it was mushrooms, <laughs> you know, the original uh, dispersion of information through the forest. Um, so it just, it was a real, I think, watershed moment for me. And I think um, I, I imagine all of the young men and women who, who collected those stories who will be similarly charged in the way I was, you know, when I first read Earth in the Balance, but charged in a way that has these values at the core that I think will spawn the next um, chapter of, of climate warriors um, that, that will have the kinds of skills and, and experiences and networks that we need to, to make the kind of progress we're going to need to make in this next decade. Julie Pullen? I am so thrilled you mentioned that book. It's um, it's actually on my bookshelf behind me. You can't see it, but um, really, what an incredible contribution to the climate community. Ayanna Johnson, who's um, one of the editors, is a friend of mine, fellow oceanographer, and she's a you know ocean policy superstar, and she could be you know doing all kinds of things with her time and what she, every time I see her, what she, what she, what her message, what she articulates and what she lives is building community around climate solutions. And it's like, that's where it's at. And, and I, I think it's really helped a lot of us focus on doing that in our own ways and in our own lives, that really sort of central and important role of of community in, in all of this. Julian Noiska, I'd like to hear your thoughts on yeah, building community around solutions and what, what you just heard, because I tend to think about indigenous cultures being more in more community oriented, less atomist, less uh, individual atoms. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the sort of climate solutions conversation, right, we talk a lot about physical infrastructure. We talk a lot about regulations. We talk a lot about price signals and incentives. And um, I think one of the things that I often sort of think about is what are the sort of forms of human resilience and community that, um, you know, play as important, if not more important a role in fortifying communities against 
disaster and against immense challenges, um, you know, as like a seawall or things like that. You know, what are the what are the elements of our culture? What are the elements of um, you know social relationships that um, can make us you know, just sort of stronger as, as people and as people who share community and space and country with each other. And one thing that makes me very nervous um, is that if you look at sort of longitudinal polling on um, questions like whether people trust their neighbors um, and questions related to social trust, um, what you'll find is that over, you know, not just a few years, but over a long period of time, the number of people who will respond to a survey and say that they trust their neighbors um, has been fundamentally going down over a long period of time. And it's not just going down in our country, it's going down, um, you know, across many different um, countries and societies where we're asking a similar question. And, you know, I think that that um, slow creep of inhumanity and distrust for our fellow people um, is a really pernicious and scary thing. And I think that one of the most important and simple climate solutions is probably just compassion and love, right? The commitment to uh, creating that sense of shared interest and solidarity um, between people. And I think that there are very particular projects in this country that are oriented towards creating more of that. Um, and I think that there are very clear um, projects in this country that are oriented towards undermining that. Reminds me of a, a book, uh, I think it was Deep Economy, that Bill McKibben wrote. One of the major achievements of the American economy of the recent decades is building bigger houses further apart from each other. So we don't, you know, we're, we're further from our neighbors if you happen to be privileged to, to own one of those houses. But you know, there's a, there's sort of... Um, more material wealth and, and, and more distance and, and separation. And, you know, to the point earlier about where should we go? Where's the safe place? I remember one person said to me, the best thing you can do about climate change is have neighbors who care about you, right? When, when the bad things come, you know, you can try to have all this hardware or gear, or you can have neighbors who care and you care about them and they'll, they'll come. Um, you know, picking up the thread of feminine leadership, Alicia, I want to ask you about one other personal uh, sort of story. Talk about bringing uh, the whole self and integrating the, the head and the heart. In 2015, you went to see a talk by Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the largest investment manager in the country. Um, he was a self-proclaimed environmentalist. And at this talk in 2015, he was asked what keeps him up at night? What was his answer? <laughs> yeah. He uh, he gave an answer about um, farmers in Southeast Asia losing their livelihoods through uh, d transformational technology, uh, and it was a conference uh, on investing in environmental markets. And so there were you know folks in the room who who are thinking about the intersection of of capital markets and 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 the environment, and. I think most people in that moment were having the same thought I had, which is that sounds like climate risk, you know, in a different form. If you rather than a technology intervention, it's drought, it's you know, it's heat, it's um, it's name your you know physical climate impact. Uh, and so someone raised their hand immediately afterwards and said, "Gee, have you you know? Well, that that's interesting. Have you thought about climate risk?" And he quite honestly and candidly said, "No, I've never thought about it." And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. 
Uh, and afterwards, there was a long line of people uh, waiting to talk to him to, to help him think about climate risk. And to his credit, within a year, less than a year of that uh, talk, BlackRock released its first report on climate risk and investment portfolios. And you know, the, the BlackRock takes a lot of flack uh, from from the left, and I think for for fair reason. But I do believe at the core there there is an understanding and awakening, and I think it's that bringing you know the two selves together for for someone like Larry Fink, who was a self proclaimed and ardent environmentalist who had just never really thought about the intersections of of that part of his life with his day job of of investing. And I think now there's there's no one in a CIO position that hasn't at least had to answer that question and who now for the most part hasn't internalized how core that intersection is to to their decision making. Yeah, that compartmentalization, you know, uh, speaks so much about how we can compartmentalize things and people doing their day jobs and then they're kind of weekend environmentalists. <laughs> uh, Julian Brave, Noise Cat, you've written about how Native Americans are portrayed in Hollywood and how that affects the ability of people to tell their own story. You know, connect that to the story of Deb Holland, the first Native American to be U.S. Secretary of the Interior, a major milestone. How do you see the way she's been portrayed as an indigenous woman making a historic breakthrough? Yeah, she's not just the first um Indigenous Secretary of Interior. She's also the first Native American Cabinet Secretary. Um, so is a, a very historic um, leader, and uh, you know her presence and the representation of Native people at the highest levels of government in this country. I think has been a very moving um, and welcome development uh, during this new Biden administration. I'm very heartened that Biden, his team. Um, his administration and the Democratic Party saw the the value in elevating um, someone who was a first term member of Congress to uh, the head of an agency that oversees a fifth of the nation's lands, a large amount of its natural resources, as well as its nation to nation relationship with tribes. Um, you know, I think that it's important to keep in frame with all that that. Um, it almost didn't happen. Um, you know, the uh, prevailing wisdom among uh, some political insiders was that the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, which has a thinner majority in this Congress than it did in the last Congress because we lost a, a lot of seats, um, could not afford to lose one of its members. Um, and so there was some pushback from, um, you know, sort of party apparatchiks uh, from from that angle. And um, there was also, I would say, a fair amount of um, coverage of Holland and her biography and her political experience um, that sort of smacked of the misconceptions uh, that often are put upon not just Native people, but also, I would say, women. Um, so there were um, anonymous quotes that were published twice in the New York Times, characterizing her as lacking policy expertise, um, which you know she actually saw four of her bills signed into law in the 116th Congress, which you know doesn't sound like someone who lacks an executive skill set or um, policy knowledge to me. Um, more laws than Bernie Sanders has got through Congress. Yeah, she's a very effective um, policymaker, um, and you know she led the New Mexico Democratic Party in 2016, and in New Mexico was actually a bright spot for Democrats in what was otherwise a very um, challenging cycle in 16. 
And, you know, I think that those things come back to um, the fact that I think there are particular ways in which this country is used to seeing Native people and um, seeing women and, um, you know, seeing Native women at the top of uh, executive agencies is is a very new one. And I think that, um, you know, her, her story was, was very nearly... Um, prevented from reaching that right and just conclusion um, by a number of folks who just couldn't see it um, the way that I think a lot of people in Indian country could. Yeah, it's not just any agency. It's the agency that, you know, pushed Indians off a lot of the land, created the national parks, which, you know, displaced a lot of people. So it's it's really quite a quite a moment. As we wrap up here, I know we, we know that educating girls and empowering women are two of the biggest levers for reversing climate disruption. Solving climate requires collective action and women are often better at collaboration, which brings me to something that isn't talked a lot about generally in our country and particularly in the climate conversation, and that's the Equal Rights Amendment. 38 states have passed the constitutional amendment. The original one has expired. There's a debate about whether to start Start over or breathe new life into the original amendment. You know, is that worth, Julie Pullen, is that worth putting energy into? So I think anytime that we can elevate the status and role of women across society, those are, you know, efforts worthy of consideration. I think there's also, um, you know, and putting energy into, quite frankly, but also um, you, if you kind of step back and think about drivers of the economy. I mean, there's a really astonishing statistic that two thirds of the wealth in the United States will be in women's hands by 2030. So, um, you know, not only is it about the more empowered decisions that educating women and girls lead to, but it's also about women's financial agency and investing in planetary stewardship. And I think that um, we will continue to see more of that as women come into their their own and having that kind of economic sense of power and the way that it can be used to um, really promote climate solutions and to accelerate our um, resilience in, in the face of um, the climate crisis. We're only beginning to see what that that will, will look like. I'm really um, excited. <laughs> Alicia Seiger, you know, ERA, is it something that you would put energy into? If not, what else would you like to see to kind of elevate the role of women and kind of directing us toward a cleaner economy that stabilizes our climate? Yeah, I think it's women in positions of power and decision making uh, and, and having seats at the table, not just one seat at the table. But as Julie said, you know, it, when will there be enough? Um, well, this is RBG's quote, but when will there be enough you know, women on the Supreme Court? You know, when there are nine. Um, if that was a good good enough for the men, it can be good enough for us. Uh, so I, I think you know I see it in terms of you know corporate leadership, in terms of investment, decision making, um, CIOs and 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 uh, uh, investors. So I, 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 programs that drive uh, that kind of equity um, are, are is where I'd like to see energy and effort, and and some of that you know California has made that a policy in terms of women on boards. Um, that's one way to do it. And it's another way, you know, to, to do it as sort of a self-governing format for, for, uh, businesses and investors. But I think, I think once we start to see diversity, um, in, in the boardroom, in the, you know, in the C-suite and, and investors, and that's both women and people of color, you know, that's where I think you start to really start to see the, the, the reimagination of, of capitalism.
capitalism, which I think is you know the core of this rebuilding that we've been talking about. We've been talking about a clean and equitable recovery with Alicia Seiger, Managing Director of the Sustainable Finance Initiative at Stanford University, Dr. Julie Pullen, a Director of Product with Jupiter Intelligence, a startup delivering neighborhood-scale projections of weather, water, and climate impacts, and Julian Brave Noisecat, Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the Think Tank Data for Progress. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Sarah Catherine Coxon and Brad Marshland are our senior producers, and our producers are Ariana Brocious and Tyler Reed. Steve Fox is Director of Advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.